coffee. What is it about coffee that makes it so damn good? Maybe it's the smell of coffee brewing that brings back that new to recovery feeling that we got when we first stepped into a meeting. Maybe it's the idea of holding on to one of the only things that still works for kickstarting our day. Maybe it's the way it brings us together, another one of the many things we have in common. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all coffee proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is the higher powder. It's dark, smoky, and rich, and gives me just enough kick to really get into my day. Right now, you can go to brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Clean your bean with Brainwash. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, everybody? I am Cameron. And I'm Willie. And today we are joined by a very special guest via Zoom with, uh, with Robert White, who is, uh, who is founder of Any Links Retreat. And, uh, and Robert is, uh, is sort of a badass, and we're happy to have him today. Um, Robert, can you say hi to everybody? Tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, Robert White, founder of Any Length Retreat, and I'm just very grateful to be here. Uh, we're a men's recovery center out of Pflugerville, Texas, that's just north of Austin, and I'm just really excited to be here. Um, I'm in long-term recovery. Uh, I'll celebrate nine years on April 28, 2012. Uh, that was my sobriety date. Um, so just really, just really pumped to be here. Nice, cool, man. Like when we we talked to to Robert a little bit before uh, before today, and we we were discussing uh, sort of the idea that there's um, a lot of different pathways to recovery. And, uh, and I know that, uh, you guys there at, at your treatment center, you do things a little bit, a little bit different. Is that right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. We're, uh, we're non-traditional in the sense of, uh, what I would consider whenever I think of treatment, um, you know, a 28 day program or a 30 day program, um, or just, you know, going into a detox center and kind of, you know, drying up and then, you know, you're sent on your way to try to figure out how to stay sober or how to apply the tools of recovery. And I went to uh, many different facilities, uh, detoxes. Um, I went to jail, prison, um, IOP. Um, I even tried, you know, Suboxone, Methadone. Mm -hmm. Um, I pretty much tried every idea before um, leaning into kind of like what I found to be my truth of what would work for me, which was the the application of the 12 steps. And so I really wanted to create an environment that didn't feel like a business. Um, it felt like a home, um, but it still had structure and discipline and support uh, for these men to get well. And so it was a true healing environment uh, where staff 
that were in long-term recovery could provide uh, the, the necessary message of hope, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, build that rapport um, because that was very important to me was, you know, do I identify with what this gentleman's telling me? Yeah. Um, and can I see like, oh, that, that recovery is possible, but not only that, like, have they been in those dark places like I have? Mm-hmm. And so that's really what, what our foundation has been built upon is, you know, any length, you know, uh, uh, comes out of the uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, you know, I always, you know, I would do anything to get high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if that was true for me getting high, you know, is that same truth for me getting sober? Am I willing to go to any length for victory over my addiction? Um, and, and that's the, like the root cause of our, of our program and, and showing these men that, you know, not only can you get sober, but you can be happy, joyous and free in recovery and you can have fun, um, and live your best life no matter what that is. So that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah I, I, uh, you know, as you were talking, it just reminded me of, uh, of, you know, being back in recovery and, and I, you know, there were those people in there, like I had a couple of, of, of counselors and one of them had not been through any sort of alcoholism or addiction. Right. And the other had, and it was like, it was, it was so obvious which one I was going to actually listen to, you know, like, I mean, they both had a lot of good information. And at that point I was desperate enough to take information from anybody, but there was one person that I, I gravitated more towards to, and that was the dude that had been where I had been. Um, and so I, you know, I love hearing like we, we on this side of the table at the other side of hell, we owe our lives to people like you and, and, and what it is you guys do. And, and I, and I like hearing too, um, that this is a men's treatment center. I didn't actually realize that until just now. Um, but that's, that's beautiful. I feel like it's really easy to get distracted with the wrong thing early in recovery. And so I think by removing that element, at least for me is, is a great idea. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, And we're a pretty small facility. So we only see a maximum of 15 guests at a time. So whenever you come in, you're not a client or a patient, you're a guest. Um, and so, you know, that home-like environment, once again, it doesn't feel like you're in, you're not in a hospital. Um, you know, it's on five acres. Um, we have a really nice gym, Mm. um, you know, and it's, and it's, everything's peer driven in that environment, right? There's no chef. Um, you know, it's like whenever we were creating this, it's like, all right, if me and my brothers went on a, a weekend vacation or whatever, you know, like we're probably going to, we're going to cook some badass food and, and we're going to have fun. And, um, and that's what the environment, you know, setting up these men to have success and necessary life skills of, you know, learning to take care of the environment they're, that they're living in as well as cooking together and doing things together um, instead of just kind of like self-isolating. So, you know, we have 11 staff members um, to 15 guests, so no one falls through the cracks, right? Um, you know, and, and that's a beautiful thing because I think, you know, I've, I've been to places where there's, you know, 100 people um, in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, I had a great experience there, but, you know, there and there was a certain level of, of some one-on-one stuff, but it was, mostly group settings and you know i didn't get to i didn't get to know the founder of the place and so i'm out there every tuesday i run a goal setting group um and i'm out there multiple times a week for many hours in the day i work out with the guys um mm-hmm. and there's not this separation from like uh 
you know, staff and guests, um, we, we're kind of all in the trenches together and I can share, you know, I don't have to pretend that like, I'm like this superhuman dude. Like I can get vulnerable about like what's currently going on. Like, what am I struggling with? Because I think that's important to share Mm -hmm. is that like, once you get sober and once you recover, like that doesn't mean that life's just going to be perfect, you know? (laughs) Um, and so they get to see that they get to see the authenticity in all of our lives and, and like get the truth about like, Hey, like I make mistakes still, um, at nearly nine years sober. And this is like what I'm walking through. And this is the, this is how I'm going to get through it by, you know, working with my sponsor and, and, you know, picking up the set of tools. So it's really awesome. Yeah. That sounds dope. Yeah. Very, very well said, man. Like I really appreciate, I appreciate what's happening there and, 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 uh, I, you know, it's funny, like I hear stuff like this sometimes and it almost makes me jealous. Like I almost want to, it's like, I almost want to go, go back, you know, to, to how it was like, uh, you know, in those early days and, and, uh, well, you, you know, do like, and you don't, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, because the, the emotional part of getting sober is, is just excruciating. It's so, there's so much doubt in early sobriety and there's so much dysfunction with, mm-hmm. within you. And so having a safe place to go is definitely something that I needed. And, and I found that also in, you know, a, a more traditional treatment center, but what that treatment center did for me was it really introduced me to what 12 step recovery was, mm-hmm. even though the treatment center itself wasn't necessarily a 12 step treatment center. They took us to meetings every day right? And, and people from the meetings would come in and bring meetings into us. And I could hear how people, outside of treatment were staying sober not necessarily getting sober i didn't i didn't hear how you got sober with the 12 steps because i was in treatment getting sober right yeah but after getting out of treatment and and maintaining the the, you know that maintenance of going to 12-step meetings and hanging out with people in sobriety that were successful through the 12 steps and through meetings you know then i started hearing how people were getting sober Mm -hmm. with the 12 steps you know and Mm -hmm. so having that whole like the entire package of it was what I needed at the time. And so that safe place gave me the opportunity to really explore who I was in my addiction because there was so much dysfunction there. That, right. And I was living in such a, uh, uh, the illusion of life, right? Like yeah. my, my life was so delusional, like nothing in, in my reality was even really going on. I was just trying to maintain my high. Yeah. Yeah. It was shit. Well, and and, and, and and it's important that we have that that place to go where we can do like all that reflection and, and investigating and, and be away from the substance long enough yeah. that we can look at all these things in our life and say, okay, like what are these unhealthy coping mechanisms that I, you know, that I um, have? Where did I get them? What can I do about them? You know, and, and on that note, like... I want to talk today, you know, uh, about uh, our topic, which is coping mechanisms. Right. Um, we got this topic from our war story today, who is Deanna. Yeah. Um, who had a great story that she shared with us. And she talks a lot about, you know, these things that she that she developed, these patterns of behavior that she had developed early on in her life after dealing with some trauma and, uh, and you know, some other things at, in early childhood that uh, that really sort of got her through 
you know, these brutal moments early in her life, but then later on in life turned into a a dramatic hindrance. And, and it's like, I, I can identify with that, right? Like I, I had all these things, all these behaviors that, uh, that were so easy for me to, to just jump right into, um, as you know, as a young kid and, and sort of be able to navigate these difficult circumstances and situations. And then those same things later on in life became such a, a hindrance yeah. and led me into, you know, what would ultimately be, you know, alcoholism and addiction. Um, and so like, I think coping mechanisms are, are worthy of talking about because one thing that I've had to learn myself when it comes to these coping mechanisms is to, to recognize that at a time, these coping mechanisms served me, right? Like they, they, they did what, they were supposed to do. They got me through these these situations, which I didn't know how to survive, um, and and to not hate myself or condemn myself for the fact that these are sort of patterns of my behavior. It's like, hey, it's okay that these are patterns of my behavior because at one time they served me okay. Like, what's not okay is for me to continue to use them. Yeah, as, as, yeah, exactly. It's like a means of of survival when I know now that there is an alternative. And so, like, that would get me into what I would call a solution um, and, and really working into how to, to navigate those coping mechanisms now. So, Robert, with your own story, like, did you – were you able to sort of identify, like, once you, once you, you know, got your foot in the door at a treatment center and maybe got some decent clean time under you, were you able to sort of go back and recognize those coping mechanisms where they were established, like, early on in your, in your life? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I really just like, so kind of a little backstory is like, you know, only child. And so I I really wanted to be a part, like I didn't mind being by myself um, because I had plenty of things to do at home, (laughs) you know? Um, But I think like how I started coping with life um, was, you know, I wanted to be a part of every group Um, and, you know, specifically remembering like in high school, um, whenever I was drinking and, you know, smoking pot or whatever, but the prior to that, like the first time I drank, like I wanted to fit in with my buddy Ryan and, you know, we had set out to like share a glass of vodka. Um, we ended up drinking the whole thing. Um, we snuck into my dad's liquor cabinet, Mm. but you know, it wasn't, you know, yeah, that, that experience with the alcohol was amazing, even though I was like, you know, it, if you ever remember drinking your first drink, it's like, man, this tastes horrible. Like what, what am I putting in my body? But then you get that, that effect produced and you're like, Oh wow, this is badass." Um, but I think it was more so like, like I wanted to like, you know, fit in with these, this guy, you know, and like be cool. Um, and so like, that's how I managed that, that stress is like, and we would do that from time to time. Um, and then like the different crowds that I would hang out in high school to fit in, or, you know, I would take people out to eat, um, and fit in. And, and it kind of just made me feel like, uh, like I was helpful, um, and made me feel important in life. Um, and then, you know, I, I told myself for the longest time, like how I would like cope with stress, you know, during school or after school, um, you know, smoking weed or, you know, the first time I took pain pills, um, you know, and I didn't have like this, you know, I had the hindsight from, you know, now being sober, reflecting on this of like, oh, well, 
you know, I, man, I was an addict and an alcoholic the first time I ever put anything in my body. Yeah. Um, but the reality that I was living in during that time is like, no, this is how you deal with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, because this, this way of life of being an addict and alcoholic was normal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was certain friends, you know, that were like me, you know, I don't know if they're addicts or alcoholics, but like they did substances and drank like I did. Now there was other people that didn't. And I was like, well, they're just different or, you know, they're not, you know, coping with stress the way I am. Um, but, but they you don't know, have the same stress that I do. Like I yeah, know that exactly. was always a thought. And so I felt different. Um, and so I always like felt I needed more uh, drugs and alcohol because my life had more stress in it. Mm-hmm. Like you don't understand. Um, and I it didn't, I didn't put the pieces together that like, man, I, I was in full blown addiction, probably like, beginning of high school you know like it happened really fast for me the progression i got much worse but um just how i was like managing life like you know was was insane Mm. um but anytime like i was met with like you know my family kind of like being concerned or you know friends being concerned like i would just kind of like thanks for the information you know like i'll i'll hide it better or like you can't tell me what to do um, and then I would go to a different, you know, group of friends where it was more accepted. Um, oh yeah, I can definitely, I can remember that. And I think that that's definitely a coping mechanism, right? It's like, I, I think that fear of rejection really is like what, what gets us yeah. into this like people pleasing mode. And then like, once we're in that people pleasing mode, like we can, we can totally like just we can burn bridges like it's nothing, right? Navigate from one group to the other. It's like, okay, well, you're not going to accept me over here, so I'll just go over here and be with these guys because, you know, if I go over here, they don't love and care me care about me the way that you do, quote unquote, love and care about me the way that you do because I'm perceiving your love and care as an attack on on my current way of life, you know? And so I'll just move from that group over to here where they're, you know, likely to not say anything for a while. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, like just keep moving around until I don't know what it was like for you, but I know in my case, like isolation became a great coping mechanism. Like I'm just not going to deal with any of it. Like I don't want to deal with people, you know, telling me that they're concerned. I don't want to deal with, you know, any of that stuff. I'm just going to isolate and surround myself with other people who will let me do whatever the fuck I want. And, and that was for a long time. That was how I dealt with life. So it's crazy. Yeah. I remember, uh, like after football in, in high school, like we'd go to, I'd go to a party, um, and I would just get completely, you know, being basically in outer space, you know, and people would be like, what is, what's going on with you? And so I would leave that party and find, try to find a different party mm. um, until eventually, like, I would just go home and, like, I would, you know, hang out in my bedroom um, and drink Boone's Farm in the shower. And, you know, I remember, like, the first time I took Xanax, like, you know, I would take I – t- I, the first time I ever took Xanax, like, I uh, – it was after – of 
a football game and like everyone was going, we had lost and everyone was going to a party and I was like, no, I'm just like, I'm going to hang back at the house. And they were like, what, you know, that's weird. Like I was like, yeah. And, um, I bought some Xanax and I think I bought like four Xanax and I, I took like one and a half and like waited like five minutes <laughs> and like feel anything. And so like I took, you know, the rest of it. And, uh, like, then I started feeling it, but right. you know, I remember, like getting my mom shaking me, um, in the morning. Cause I like, we had Saturday practice, um, and I nearly didn't make practice, but that was how I coped. Like I, I just was like, I wanted to be left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, so like, like as I reflect on this topic and I think about my own life story, you know, I can find where I started shutting down at a really young age because of some trauma, you know, some dysfunction and some distrust. One of the first things that I did was was stop trusting authority. Mm. And mm. and when I, you know, when I trace my steps back and I see the circumstances of what made that happen, I can go through and I can see where that was such a huge part of my own demise throughout my entire life because me not trusting authority put me in a place where I didn't trust any of the information that was coming my way, you know, and, and it's not, I wasn't a dumb kid, you know, I, I had the ability to take examples from different situations and analyze those things. Like I could watch the people in my life drinking, telling me not that I shouldn't be drinking, but they were, looked like they were having a good time drinking. And so I could analyze that situation and be like, well, why are you telling me not to drink when it looks like you're having such a great time? Right. Right. And then they would tell me, well, you don't want to be drinking because you have a good chance of becoming an alcoholic. Well, I didn't care. Right. Because I didn't trust you anyway. So there was nothing that anybody was going to say that could put me in a position to where I would go off of the information that they were giving me. And so that was one of the coping mechanisms that I used was, was lack of trust. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had all the reasons in the world to not trust any authority. Right. Right. And then the other one was like, people were telling me who to be and what to be my whole life, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like, and I obviously rebelled against that. So if you told me to be good, I would be bad. If you told me to be bad, I would be good. Right. and I, I don't know that that's necessarily an addict trait or, or whatever. Like, I think it's pretty common between all people, but I took it to the extremes, right? Like if you told me to not jump off the bridge and you couldn't give me a reason that I wouldn't totally agree with, I would jump off the bridge. Yeah. And so drugs and alcohol were something that I was attracted to because at a very young age, I started dealing with a low self-image, right? Like I started dealing with this low self-esteem. I started dealing with this idea that I wasn't worthy of the things that seemed like other people were worthy of. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally did find, uh, drugs and alcohol to work, because I'm like, I'm like you, like when I first tried drinking, I hated the way that it tasted. And it was the same thing with smoking pot. Like the first time I smoked pot wasn't a great experience, but I'm going to be persistent. You know, everybody else seems to be Yeah, you got to smoke pot through that. (laughs) You got to get to the other side of that. Keep trying. Like if you're going to sufficiently hate yourself as an adult, you have to keep doing the things that create hate within yourself, you know? So, um, 
one of the things that I did was, was I, I became this chameleon, like you're talking about, like I became whatever group I was in, Mm -hmm. I became whatever thing was going to keep me safe. And ultimately that's really what the core of me was trying to do was stay safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did all this negative shit. And so like, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at, like, did it, have you processed through your life far enough back to kind of understand where your coping mechanisms came from? And like, how did you, how did, how did you get to the point where you understood the negative coping mechanisms to change those into a more positive coping mechanism? Cause we still want to feel safe. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of like, I identify with what you were talking about with, uh, members from my family. Um, and I was like warned early on, like, Hey, like you probably need to be careful around alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad's dad, you know, he, he died of alcoholism. Um, and it, and it sprinkled throughout my family. And so I'd have these warnings, but I would see, right. Like I would observe, you know, my dad and like his friends would come over and they'd party and they'd look like they were having fun. Um, you know, and as it progressed, like other people is like, well, what, like there seems to be a contradiction here. Like y'all are doing it, but I can't. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it was like immediately lack of trust around that or, um, so it was lack of trust and I'll prove y'all wrong. Right. Right. Ego involved Uh, there. Yeah. And so that was kind of like my thing is that I wanted to be, I didn't really realize this at the time, but I, I, almost went the exact opposite of what my dad was, um, in that sense of like, so he's a personal injury lawyer in Odessa, Texas, um, family's well known in that, in that region. Um, and so like, I was a part of these things like, you know, socially and and stuff like that. And like was provided all these great opportunities, but I would almost like, I would just self-sabotage it. Mm you know, to like prove a point. Uh, and I, I, that wasn't like my intention to do so. Right. Um, but like I would dress differently, you know, like, or I would do things to like cause reactions because like, I'm like, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. y'all are telling me to do this. And like, if I do this and like, this will be provided. Uh, it's really insane. Um, right. Yeah. But it, that's how I like, that's how I manage that. Um, it was like, all right, I don't trust what y'all are saying is true because like y'all have a successful life and, and you drink. Um, why can't I do the same thing? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'll prove you wrong. Um, and I didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> well, and like what you were saying, like reminded me that, you know, sometimes this stuff is really, it's subconscious. Like we don't, we yeah. don't consciously choose to to divert this or to move this way, you know, to navigate around these things or or past them or over them. Like, you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, I on a deep level, I think a lot of the reason why I would use isolation as a coping mechanism was because, you know, I was completely insecure. Like I, you know, I, I, I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't know how to deal with situations. I was certain that if you interacted with me, that you were going to just be you know, 
completely frustrated and, and condemn me as stupid and, and, you know, and, and every negative thing that I could possibly think of would come out of your mouth. So I would just isolate to, to avoid this stuff. But I don't know that there was ever like a cognitive or like, you know, a, a, a conscious decision to, I'm just going to avoid this you know, because, uh, it, it will likely make me feel this way if I enter into that. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of fascinating to think about like where my, what my mind will just do automatically in order to avoid this stuff without even knowing what, what, what's really happening, yeah. which is maybe some of the, the trickiness that comes in with coping mechanisms and is that they're just so deeply integrated into us that it's not something that we can recognize easily. Yeah. It's not something that that you know we can f- change or fix easily. Like it takes a lot of work to even recognize what they are, and then to begin changing them. You know, is it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And wouldn't wouldn't you agree that like it, you get to a point like like we've all gotten to a point. You have almost nine years sober. Like we got to a point where we were finally recognizing that something wasn't working. Right. right. Like that's, that's ultimately what it gets to. Like we tried drugs and alcohol for so long. <laughs> I know I did. Yeah. Like long past the due date. Like maybe this bender will fix me or <laughs> maybe this, you know, relationship. One of the things that I did was self harm and I wanted to understand why I would physically hurt myself. Mm. Right. Like why, why am I the guy that like, will will get upset and punch myself in the face or throw myself against the wall or try to get beat up by the cops or get in a fight you know all those things are are forms of self-harm and what it boiled down to was was that i was so afraid of being hurt by other people that i figured out that if i could hurt me more than you could hurt me then there's no way that you could ever hurt me right 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 and and that came from a lot of damage but it also came from like this place of like what happened that that made me want to start understanding that that's not okay right mm-hmm. so like robert for you like when when you bring in a new guy to um you know that the as a um sorry as a guest sure. as a guest yeah. in the house right when you bring in a new guest into the house you know what are some of the things that you do to start off a brand new person to start recognizing some of these things for them? Like, how do you, how do you process with another, another guy that's never been, or that has been in and out like of treatment, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you do with the new people that you bring in? So, I mean, we have a a trusted servant system. Um, and so we have mentors that are staff that work there and then a retreat director. Um, but our trusted servant system is when you you start out you come in as a as a king um and so we really want to welcome them because of this like distrust that you know we all have um when we come in it's like oh this you know especially people that have been in and out it's like oh that's going to be the same thing right you know it's going to check the boxes blah 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 and uh we really want to establish that rapport um and so the the trusted servant will, you know, come in after the intake, introduce themselves, um, you know, show them around, you know, make them feel welcomed. Um, and so, you know, they'll help them with, you know, making their bed, uh, bringing them a plate of food. Um, and then we'll do a welcome meeting. Um, and that's where everyone kind of just like, you know, 
not shares their whole story because it would take forever, but just is like, Hey, like you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and here for you, so it gives you that, that human, um, experience of invitation to like, Hey, we're here to connect with you. Like there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, and then we start really looking at, you know, why are you really here? You know, um, like, are you here for the, like, Cause I know like many times, like I didn't go into these environments to get well. Um, I thought I was, but through looking back, like I was trying to get something off of my back, whether that was my right. family, um, a girlfriend, the courts, um, whatever it was. And so it's like really examining, like, you know, why are you here, man? Um, and like, and telling them like our kind of our story about like the reasons we were at places like this before. And then so, okay. Like, Hey, if you're here to get the courts off your back, like, let's be honest about that. So we can really start examining like and, and discovering the truth of who you are mm. uh, as a human. And like, you know, are you the real addict and alcoholic? Um, and once that rapport's built, you know, we start taking them through our curriculum, um, which really just examines like, um, obviously step one, because like, that's really like, I need to have a firm foundation on step one, but what is step one? You know, because there's so many, you know, I guess ways of explaining that, yeah. but can you, can you explain that in your own experience? Um, and then, you know, we have them tell their story, um, you know, pretty early on, that'll be a corrective measure because like, I don't know a lot of things, like I'm still getting revealed parts of my story, like the longer I stay sober, I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right. Um, and so like we sit there with them and, you know, they have a, a weekly uh, meeting with their mentor. Um, we do groups throughout the week of just like how they're interacting um, with the community as a whole. And they'll get feedback on that. Um, and, and we'll start to examine, but I think like where that real work, um, you know, the tools that we identify that we were using, um, to survive. Um, because I always like to say like, we, we didn't come into sobriety without any tools. We, we had just a different set of tools. And so now to create these new pathways, like we have to live by a a different set of tools. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have to, you know, so what should I have done instead? Right. Like if I'm a liar, um, like, you know, my, easy way out is like my answer should would be like i'll say oh well i need to be honest well like i can't be honest like if i'm a liar right um and so that's not the answer you know it's like what specific measurable actions do i need to start taking and so like that might be uh prayer meditation right um Mm -hmm. sitting in prayer meditation it might be um you know, I need to start making some of these amends. Um, or it might be like, okay, well, in order to start being honest, like I need to start getting vulnerable um, and telling the whole story instead of like keeping these bits of information to myself. But it needs to be specific things because like if I'm going to start living in these virtues or these assets of life instead of defect or, you know, whatever my liability list then like, that's a process, but I can't just be like, okay, well today I'm going to be honest, you know, right. cause like that's not going to happen. Um, and so we start, you know, hopefully if someone has been, you know, taking action up to this point, they can start, you know, identifying through their community and through their mentor, um, and their work with their sponsor of like, okay, well it's like in order for me to be honest, you know, like I need to take some specific actions, um, instead of, you know, Oh, well today I'm just going to be honest. So I love that. Yeah, that was great. And, and what, it, 
what it reminded me of, and I, I love that you use the example of lying, like because <laughs> me too. That's definitely like I, I to this day, I still have a hard time being honest. Willie knows because I, t- I share with him all the time. Like I feel like I have a, a, a very close, you know, group of people that I'm like 100% honest with, and it's not that I lie, but I'm just not open and vulnerable, like like you talked about. You know, not all the time, and I think, um, like one thing that you talked about there that I, that I got out of what you just said is like these, like we didn't, we didn't come into the game without tools. Like these coping mechanisms are our tools, right? Like we, we had some, some tools that were obviously getting us through life as it was, but we need to put down those tools and pick up a new set of tools because obviously those old tools aren't working. And, you know, one thing that, you know, I, I was thinking about, as you said, like it, it, it really has to be something that we do on a consistent basis, which is why like in the, like for, for example, like when it comes to the 12 steps, like this is, this is not something that we, you know, just power through and then we're done. Right. Like it has to be a new way of life. Like if we're going to establish those neural pathways and this new way of being and this new way of like dealing with these situations and these new coping mechanisms, then we have to do it consistently over and over and over because man, those bad habits, like those, those negative coping mechanisms, they're deep. Yeah. They're deep and they're, they're, they're difficult to get away from. And so like, obviously like we, we are proof of that, you know, that it can happen, but we're also proof that it's difficult. Yeah. You know, like none of us, like I dare say, like, sobered easily <laughs> no. you know yeah and, and and it's not like we took days off right like um like you were saying you got to stay consistent and i i love everything that you were just talking about because um being on this side of the table now everything that you said is definitely a demonstrable solution like that can be demonstrated over and over and over again you know bringing somebody in with the presence of love like i see you mm-hmm. i and you are the same like I'm not there today, but that's only through the grace of this work that I'm doing. Like, we're not different, you know. I'm not better than you. I am you. I'm just not you today. And so let me show you some of these things that I did with the help of this guy that's right here next to me. You know, the two of those guys together welcoming the new person going, these are the things that we did that worked, which was getting transparent, you know, taking a look at a different solution, getting honest about what it is I'm doing that's keeping me sick. Um, do I even want to change? Right. Is that some place that I even want to go? And like most people that I've talked to that end up on the, the doorstep of a treatment center or sitting in a chair at a 12 step meeting have already been beaten to the point of, of readiness to at least start listening and, and, you know, the, the ground is kind of fertile for some type of seed, if yeah. you will, you know? And so if you're, if you're in that place, if you're on the doorstep of a treatment center, you're probably led, ready to hear something, right? We don't end up here. Most people don't end up in treatment or in 12 step recovery the first time they drink. It's like a yeah. lot closer to the last time. They right. Drink. You like to think. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. You know, if it works out. And so all those things that you said are like just great examples of things that work. You know, so I appreciate that that's, that's the program. Like how, how, long, how long is a standard program that you guys run there? Uh, 60 days. Nice. 
Yeah, and that seems to be like a, about the right amount of time. Like in, in my in my own experience, like I needed, I did a twenty eight treatment program, and then I did a sixty day program, and like I can tell you, you know, which one I benefited more from. But you know, also it it takes different things at different times. You know, like I, I was yeah. maybe not as ready and willing, and and you know, like I obviously had to go back out and and recognize that obviously these coping mechanisms are still not working, you know, like it's still, it's still, uh, having a negative impact on my life, you know, and they're indeed broken and, and there is indeed, you know, a, a, a need to change. Like I'm wondering though, Robert, like, and this is maybe just out of strict curiosity, just because it usually really, really, uh, I find it really fascinating, but like with your own story, can you just tell me like, what it was like for you to come to that conclusion where, you know, you, you knew that it wasn't working and, and you'd sort of were ready and willing to take the next step. What was that like for you? So I got sober in November, 2010, and it was like a difference than like the previous attempts. And like, I was on fire for recovery. Um, and I was being honest and like, I was like doing everything that was suggested my way. Um, I had some things hanging over my head. So I was on uh, deferred probation. I violated probation. I was on deferred probation for five years. Um, and I violated that with possession of controlled substance. And so that was kind of the thing hanging over my head. I was looking at 10 years in prison and, but that was kind of like different. Like I went all in. Um, and I, you know, they told me like, I was thought I was going to go to this 30 day treatment center and they said, Hey, we want you here for 90. I was like, all right, I'm willing. Um, I wanted to go to this one sober living and my parents drew a boundary, like, like a real boundary for the first time. And, uh, and they said, no, you're going to go to this one. And I was like, all right, um, you know, I'll do that. And, you know, I started carrying the message, doing everything that, you know, a recovered person should do. And we were going back and forth through the courts um, and, you know, got dropped to five years, got dropped to uh, eventually I signed for 30 months. And so over that, like a little over a year period, um, I felt engaged um, and like I didn't feel like I had any reservations about recovery. Um, and so I went into uh, prison. Um, and served a, uh, was sentenced to 30 months. I, I ended up getting out after seven months, but during that time, um, I was on fire. I felt more free than I ever had, like in my life. And I was locked up. Like I didn't want to be there obviously, right. but, uh, like I was content as, as, as I could be, um, with, you know, serving the time for my crime, right? Like, like paying, you know, making that amends to the state of Texas and, and so somewhere through there, like I, I bounced around to different uh, uh, prisons and the last prison that I got transferred to was in Mineral Wells and it was the pre-parole pre-release facility. And something like clicked in my head. I was like, oh, I'm about to get out of here. Or like I was talking to like some of the other inmates and they were like, hey, you're about to get out of here. Like you don't have any like, you know, violent crimes or whatever. And like the prison system was being overpopulated in Texas. And so I don't know if like, I just like started obsessing about that and was like, Oh, I'm about to get released. But, uh, I started to be dishonest. Mm. Um, and I, and I started smoking cigarettes in prison, which is illegal. Um, and this is me putting 
these kind of things together after the, like right. I didn't see anything wrong with it then. Yeah. Uh, I was like, you know, what's the big point of this? And, uh, so second dishonest action was like, I manipulated my mom, um, because now we had established some trust and I, you know, mm. I got her to, uh, commit an illegal activity of, she didn't know she was doing this, of course, but, uh, I said, Hey, there's two types of commissary. I was like, well, I'm tired of trading like soups and stamps and commissary for tobacco. Um, like I'm just going to lie to my mom and get her to get me a green dot card number so I could give it to someone in the facility and like get my own tobacco. And, and so now I had my own tobacco, um, didn't see anything wrong with that. And in me and a cellmate, we would share our tobacco so it wouldn't burn through it. We'd just share a cigarette or whatever. And one night, like I was sitting there with him and we were smoking a cigarette and I was like, man, what? like I felt this buzz and I was like, what the hell did you do? Did you put some in the cigarette? Oh no. And he was like, he was laughing. He was like, yes, I uh, put K2 in there. And I was like, dude, you know, I'm sober. Um, and so I got, I got mad at him and I went to my bunk and, uh, just laid there. And the first thought was, man, you need to call your sponsor, like talk to someone in the prison about this, like get honest, get transparent. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to go to sleep. I'll address this in the morning. Um, so I suppressed it. Um, and then I woke up and the thought wasn't to call anyone. The thought was like, well, it's not heroin. It's not alcohol. Yeah long as I mix K2 and tobacco together, then it'll be okay. Um, and so then I was miserable for the next three months and it, and it got to this point, uh, right. Whenever I, I, it was like, I just turned 24. Um, and I was just like, man, recovery doesn't work. This is bullshit. Mm. Like everything's a lie. Right. Um, and I like sat in this like self pity for around like three or four days and my contemplated suicide and you know i was like all right well this is my plan like i'm never i'm never gonna do recovery again um i'm i'm just like hopefully i won't make it to c25 um and then the next day like i had this other thought that no like you're full of shit like you were you were the one that was dishonest um nice. like recovery real like you you just not that long ago like you were more free in prison than you were on the outside. Nice. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I was like, that's a weird thought. And I was, and, and like, it was like, you've never gone all the way in, like truly, because like, if you did, like you would have gotten honest about smoking cigarettes in prison. You would have not manipulated your mom to, you know, get uh, money to get a, uh, your own tobacco and so I kind of just like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in. And I got out on April 28th, 2012. Um, and I've been sober ever since, but I changed everything about how, um, like I, I kept this secret about, um, getting high in prison for a year. Um, but I was willing, like I had this willingness to get honest about it. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't completely closed off. Like I, I kind of was like, I, I would, lie through a mission like i would tell up to the point of like him spiking the cigarette but no right. more yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i would push it down um and that was kind of like the shift that happened was like a year later where i was at this meeting um at this this uh retreat like this uh, alumni reunion at this facility 
and I beeline to this old timer and was like, Hey, like, I've been thinking about getting honest about this, but like, everyone's going to judge me. Everyone's going to make fun of me. You know, like I, I felt shame and guilt about basically being a fraud, uh, for the, the first year. Cause we had opened up any length sober living. I was like, well, I really can't tell this right now. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. And he just kind of laughed and like, not like laughing <laughs> at me, but like laughing, like he'd done some similar stupid shit, yeah. you know, and it was like, it, it was like laughing, like it wasn't a big deal. And I was like, man, how can you feel that this isn't a big deal? <laughs> he was like we all lie, dude. You know, it's like, you know, what I want you to do is like share this at the meeting tonight. I was like, what? You know, that's <laughs> crazy. And, uh, and so I did though. Um, and it was like the, it was powerful getting transparent in that audience. But I think more, more so than that was like, I didn't feel any judgment. Um, and after the meeting, like, men and women came up to me and like, they started getting vulnerable about their secrets. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, this is the key. Like my dark past, like, just like what it says in the big book is, is my greatest asset. Um, and so I always bring that up, like, you know, any meeting that I remember to do so is like, Hey, does anyone have any secrets? And I tell that story mm. just because like, I was like, man, you don't have to live in that bondage. Like I did for that year. Um, and, and pretend and, and try to like, you know, and that was the difference was like me going all in me being completely honest about who I am. And like, I was met with love, you know? Um, and it just goes to show you like how insane my mind is. Right. Like when it's everyone's going to hate me, everyone's going to judge me when it, no, like that's me. Like that's what I'm doing to myself, mm. you know, give, give the, give everyone else an opportunity to meet me with love. Um, and that's what happened. So, yeah. Short well, I, I just love hearing, you know, about, about that shift that takes place because it happens, you know, like it, it happens kind of dramatically and it feels like once that click sort of happens, like the willingness opens up and we are willing to go to any lengths. And, and, you know, on that note, I want to talk a little bit about our war story because yeah. Deanna shared, shared her story with us. She was amazing and you know she's not a 12-step person but she she reached that point in her own life right like yeah. where where she began willing to to recognize what wasn't working for her and what needed to happen in order to to live a better way of life yeah and so she's i mean she was amazing she's great yeah, yeah. A little savage and and i appreciate and she can tell her story better than us but you know i appreciate her getting to a point where she was recognizing this stuff for a while and then trying it one more time mm -hmm. like let's just mm -hmm. let's just make sure that that it is what it is and sure enough like it led to like one of the pivotal points in her life that shift happened after you know she decided to, to finish it all yeah so yeah. yeah it was amazing and i'm excited to, to share her story with you guys so with that we're gonna let you listen to deanna's war story uh, my name is deanna dawson and i am a mom of three in colorado and this is my story of my journey with alcohol and how how it came and wove its way into my life as a coping mechanism over a period of time. 
so it didn't feel like it was a dramatic, you know, um, hard and fast relationship. Um, in fact, it took a long time for me to really be a drinker. Um, but I would say starting with the childhood story, I grew up in a house with a lot of trauma, like a lot of people, you know, who have these stories, uh, was highly unstable emotionally. Um, but my material needs were met well. Um, so as a kid, I didn't know that what I was dealing with wasn't normal or that there was a problem with it. So my mom had a number of diagnoses. Um, she's now diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Uh, she was lots of signs of borderline personality disorder, um, narcissistic personality disorder, right? So as a young child growing up in this, everything looks on the surface to be, well, you know, a good thing. But emotionally, we have a wasteland, right? And this person who's saying, well, I'm a good mother. I'm a good mother. I love you. Oh, so this is love, right? So, <clears throat> so addiction always played a role in our lives. My mom wasn't an alcoholic, but my father was. So at nine years old, she left him and we went to live with my stepfather, which was a man she really barely knew. And uh, he was not uh, an alcoholic. So that life appeared to be very stable um, to me. And, but, but it was a very loveless home. Um, their relationship was very cold. And, and so it was a very, I lived, I learned to live very early in the state of cognitive dissonance where it looked like one thing, but it was really another thing. And, um, and as a child, I was very exuberant and loving. And so the only way to make sense of this was to believe a reality that didn't exist. And so this would end up being a coping mechanism that would follow me, well, until about two years ago. So, um, so there was always smoking. So there was always a, uh, lots of smoking going on. Everybody smoked. Of course, this was the eighties. And so I just always believed that addiction and adulthood somehow that was just normal, right? That was normal life. So at about 14 years old, my brother came to live with us and he was already steeped heavily in addiction. So he was a drug addict at that point. Um, and, uh, and to this day, so he's about 50 years old and still struggles with that lifestyle. Um, and I learned, but I learned early, oh, I don't want to be that. I saw the impact that it has, how dramatic, you know, the drug addiction impact is. And I, I said, oh my gosh, no, I'll never be that. So I took the role of the overachieving superstar, <laughs> right? I will, I will get love. I will um, I will be perfect. That's how I will navigate this incredibly unstable environment is I will just be perfect and you'll have to love me. And so that's kind of how I did it. Um, and I would say now, now eating became my addiction first. I became a, a compulsive binge eater. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night eating and some of that was my mom actually created it by following me around. Oh, what are you eating? You're going to get fat, you know? Um, so I also picked up early in life that if I exhibited strength or self-esteem, she would come in and attack in some way. So I, I realized later in life that it had become a coping mechanism for me 
to make sure I stayed small, right? Because she was dangerous emotionally. And so to stay safe, I had to stay small. She could not sniff self-esteem in me or it would be a, you know, rough for me. So, um, so I go after I left her house, I left eating disorders there. So that was lucky. That was lucky for me that I didn't, I went on and achieved a lot in life, put myself through school, joined the army and alcohol didn't really play a role until I was in my mid twenties. And then it was just social drinking. I mean, considering the, the level of addiction in my family, it's kind of shocking that alcohol didn't really get a hold or drugs, nothing had really gotten a hold. But, I, but when I drank, it was not healthy. And I didn't know that, right? Because you kind of gravitate towards people who are drinking like that too. We're going out, one drink turns into five. Next thing you know, we're pouring ourselves hopefully into a cab and no one's driving. And then, you know, you're hung over the whole next day and that's just normal, right? But I could pick it up and put it down. It wasn't like it was something I thought about or craved. So this went, this way of drinking went on until I was probably in my thirties. But one pattern that I took with me from that childhood was I uh, gravitated towards, I had this toxic naivete, this malignant optimism about how I coped. So I was very, very good at living in a reality, but choosing to see a better one, right? And creating this cognitive dissonance everywhere I went. So I would easily gravitate towards characters who were terrible for me, wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, I married this, I dated this. I, you know, a frenemy, I could find a frenemy in a room and I would plow to that. I would plow Mother Teresa over to befriend a friend of me, right? So, so this, what I realized is the anxiety, the ensuing anxiety that only increased as I, you know, you, you accrue this history of living like this. Um, the anxiety is what I began to drink to cope with, right? Because I would want to see this but it was really this and I just didn't want to see the truth. So I, I married and befriended all the personality disorders. I mean, this pattern went on over and over again. I was the people pleasing, fresh blood, you know, a narcissist could smell a mile away. And um, I just lived that pattern. I repeated it of befriending people who didn't, loving people who didn't love me back and then needing to medicate the ensuing anxious feelings that resulted from that. So then, you know, that, that led into being attracted to the new age, right? Another sort of uh, manifestation of that, you know, of course I wanted to believe that the world was really sparkly and full of unicorns and beautiful, you know, and I wanted to, it, it also teaches that, you know, the, the darkness is in me, the problem is me. And I already believe that I'm deeply flawed. So this is perfect, right? And, but again, I'm creating more cognitive dissonance that I'm living with. And so um, it was about, I would say, my, so I, I had gotten married and divorced in my 20s, no kids. I had gotten married, had two kids, got divorced in my 30s. And each time this is happening, I'm getting more exhausted. 
I'm, I'm accruing greater history that I don't want to face, right? Truths that I don't want to face. How is this happening? Um, like how, how is this happening to me? Uh, but, but I can do it, right? There, there's a quote um, from the movie, the, the show, The OA, uh, Prairie Johnson, the main character. She says, uh, this quote describes my entire life up until two years ago. She says, the biggest mistake that I made was in believing that if I cast a beautiful net, that it would, it would attract only beautiful things, right? This was how I lived my life. So even after that marriage, I, I went back, I can do this. I can create a great life, you know, but I wasn't healing this trauma. I was never healing this trauma. I didn't know what the originating trauma was or what this pattern was that was causing me to do this. So I went on um, to get married a third time. And, I, and as I went into this relationship, this is where, so I made it to 39, which is kind of stunning. Actually, I made it to 39 before I reached a point where um, I noticed it when I wasn't drinking. So as I entered this relationship, I needed alcohol to cope with the fact that I was entering or I felt I needed it to cope because I was entering a very emotionally dangerous situation. And I didn't want to face that. I didn't want to see that. And, um, and so now I, I wanted to drink every day. And then if I didn't drink that day, I knew it. I noticed it. And I noticed that I noticed it and said, oh, I wonder if that was sort of like the alcoholic gene was turning on. Um, and so what I did is, you know, I, I used wine to come home at night and pop open a bottle and pretend that my net had caught something beautiful when in fact it had not. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I had a child. Early in the relationship, uh, it was three months in, I got pregnant with my son with someone I barely knew. And um, I, I then went on to quit my job to raise this, my son and put myself in statistically the most vulnerable position I could have put myself in. And, um, and of course, the relationship isn't going well. I've repeated my pattern. Uh, this is somebody who doesn't actually love me and I don't want to face it. So I became the mom that, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to, I'm running double time to believe that this is what I want it to be and to do it. I'm, I've got my trusty vodka in my water bottle and it's vodka and orange juice at the pool. That sounds fun, right? It's kind of like I'm on vacation, you know, and, uh, uh, and that's, that's how I did it. And then when that relationship ended, my, when my son was one, um, the, the, to cope, I, I mean, how, I didn't know how to cope with this. How did I do this again? How did I do this again? I'm not dumb. I'm educated. I'm, uh, you know, I have so much to offer. How is this my life story? I couldn't make fucking sense of that. And so that was, you know, I, I used alcohol to cope through the duration of the relationship and I surely needed it to cope with the end. So that for the next few years, I drank, I mean, my self-esteem was crumbled. It was gone. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust life. Um, I, I had no idea why every time I stepped out the door, it was like, I was just fresh blood for another, you know, person that I, I, I couldn't see. I couldn't get it. So I got very lucky in that um, 
there was a point at which alcohol uh, gave me debilitating migraines. So I, I remember one night I drank these four little bottles, those little ones that come in the little thing, which is not a lot of alcohol to somebody who's drinking very regularly. And, um, and I was like, you know, I have to say too, like I was the way that I did it, it was more like a, uh, an IV drip, you know, it, it, I would have it around during the day, sipping it. So I would just sort of always have that little buzz, you know, it was, it seemed functional ish. I knew it was a problem because I was hiding it. Right. I didn't want people to smell alcohol in my breath. I would have tactics or tricks to hide that. So I knew it was a problem. Um, and, uh, and luckily for me, my body stopped metabolizing it well at all. And so I would get these migraines. And, uh, after this one, four little bottle night, um, I threw up for 16 hours with pain, head pain that should have probably sent me to the, to the ER to get it checked out. So I knew that was going to be the end. It was kind of an abrupt end to drinking alcohol. Um, and then uh, I said, okay, cool, we're done. So I, I quit and I didn't drink again for two years. And then in that time, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to make an identity of it. Like I didn't want to, uh, and I had three little kids. I didn't, I couldn't really go to a lot of meetings or so I said, okay, how am I going to do this? So I started reading books and I started finding support that I could find in my pretty isolated life. And I found a book called, um, kick the drink easily by Jason Vale. It's a very cheesy title but it was incredibly helpful to me. And he talked about that possibility of being, you know, making the choice to, uh, you know, not counting the days. Like if it weren't for this app, I wouldn't have known how much time had passed. I wasn't counting the days. I wasn't white knuckling. I didn't want to white knuckle like, oh, I'm not drinking. You know what I mean? I wanted to, to let it go and move on, to walk away and move on. And I did, I did. And I, and I felt like, the resources that I gathered helped me do that. Um, but then, then just a couple of months ago, I was like, oh, well, uh, I'm going to go date. I'm going to go, how do you date and not drink? And so, um, so I thought I can have a couple of drinks, right? Sure. I could do that. I could go out and have a drink. Well, I found out that I didn't get those migraines anymore, but I got blackout drunk. Like, and I would still be functional because I only had a couple of drinks and it didn't matter if it was wine. It didn't matter if it was a harder alcohol, but I was going from a little bit buzzed to having no recollection of what happened. And I was lucky that this didn't last very long. Um, but again, it was obviously a sign that my body just wasn't, it wasn't going to hack this. And the characters that I would, you know, I noticed that the people that I was meeting that wanted to drink were just really looking for party buddies. Right. And, um, and in that period of time where I was having some drinks one night, I came home and in a blackout state. So now here's the mistake that I did make is that I did quit drinking and I did move on. But what I did not do is um, I didn't, it was from a, I was living from a place of resignation. I had finally accepted that reality was dark. I wasn't trying to medicate that anymore. I wasn't living with cognitive dissonance anymore, but I was really living in a place of, well, life is really fucking dark. Okay, what's the point? Really, what's the point of this?
So what what I was really living with was an underlying desire to really be done with this life. And I wouldn't call that, like, I wouldn't say I was actively suicidal, but I wouldn't have been sad about a cancer diagnosis. You know what I mean? And so, um, so I was living in that place and, uh, I was still going on. It's not like I've ever had the luxury. I mean, if you knew me and and you didn't know me that well, you wouldn't know that I was living with that. But I was pretty resigned that this is just dark. Well, one day in having um, reached that blackout space, I wasn't even feeling particularly low that day. Um, Nothing. I wasn't sad or depressed or anything that I, you know, but I woke up the next day. And the first thing that I did remember, thankfully, from that state, I just walked over, grabbed a handful of Benadryl, popped it, just ate it. Perfectly fine if I didn't wake up the next day. Like, what? Holy shit. So that was the end of that. I never had it. I said, well, obviously, I can't trust anything that I'm doing in this blackout state. So it was the next day that I um, I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm... Obviously not, I can't even have one drink. So that's the end of that. Um, It's not the fun experience that I ever remember it being. um, And it will never be again. And I can't trust what what I'll do. So I, I, that was a big wake up call for me because I had to make a choice. Yes, reality can be very, very dark. But what, but I'm still here. I didn't get that cancer diagnosis and those Benadryl didn't knock me out. So, um, so what am I going to do? What's my plan? Really? What's my plan? And I made a plan and I got up and I started to fill that space that, um, that alcohol had once filled that I then just kind of left empty. I filled with creating a program of, empowering myself, becoming physically healthy, healthier than I've ever been, surrounding myself with high quality. I mean, because this just happened two months ago, a month, two months, month and a half ago was the Benadryl event. Um, and uh, I am grateful for the event, Whew, but that could have been really dangerous. Um, and uh, if I, I went back and kind of like did the math to figure out what would have, can you really off yourself with Benadryl? What is that amount? And I, I mean, I was probably five or five or so away from it being a dangerous amount. And I thought about, holy shit, how many people do that, you know, in that state and they're successful and they'll never get that chance to come back and decide, you know, to know that inside this dark place of this dark life that so many of us have navigated that we really do have the choice to rise up within it and become a character we never knew that we could be. And so it was the beginning of that journey for me of rising up in it and becoming a character I never knew I had the capability of being Um, and not having to deny that, yeah, reality can be really hard. Yeah, really dark, really hard. But the responsibility, I'm stuck here. It's like labor. When you're given birth, you're not getting out of it until that baby gets out of there, right? And that's where we're at. And I finally had to stop being a victim about it and decide uh, what I was going to do about it. And um, it's been a, it's been a long, wild ride. But I, I mean, to be where I sit now, following the program that I'm following now, 
finding out who I am now, surrounding myself with the people that I have now is unbelievable, unbelievable. I never would have believed two months ago that, that I would have found it within me to rise up this way. Yeah, so that's, that's about it. That's the story and whew, I'm glad, I'm glad to be here to tell it. And if you want to follow me or stay in touch, um, you can find me on Instagram at Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A, Gail, G-A-L-E, Dawson. Um, that's my handle there. And uh, I love to support anybody in their journey. So please reach out and stay connected. Yeah, Deanna, we're, we're super glad you're here to tell the story too. So thank you so much for putting yourself out there. Like yeah. I got a ton out of it again. Yeah. Again. Thank you. Thank you, Deanna. It was great. I, I, I feel like I know you. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and that's how it is with a lot of these people. Like we, we hear their stories and it's like, man, I identify and like, they really are like brothers and sisters, you know, yeah. like, um, in, in this, this deal that we have, but yeah, man, I got, a, I got a lot out of her stuff. Like one thing I'll say right off the bat, like it's, I, I too took a handful of Benadryl. You know, oh, did you? I wasn't intentionally like, you know, trying to kill myself, but I did look at my hand full of Benadryl and say, I don't know if this is gonna kill me, but I also yeah. don't care. I remember you telling us yeah. that now, and uh, and I, I don't, I, I had quite the experience on a handful of Benadryl, yeah. I'll say that. Um, maybe yeah, she was be blacked like, out, but it's not uncommon, yeah, right? I, right? Like, and um. You know, we talk about those suicidal thoughts, those suicidal mm. attempts, and they're so common, right? Like, so common. Like, oh, yeah, we hear like, them all why, the time. Why go on? Yep. Why go on? Mm-hmm. You know, so, Robert, you listened to the story. Like, what What did you think, bro? Like, Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated Deanna, and uh, I didn't ever do it, like, with, like, the Bindrill, um, but I identify with, like, my version of that, which, like, um, I'm a heroin. I, I did everything. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like heroin wasn't working like it used to. And then that's kind of like what I felt in her story is like, I don't want, whenever I'm drinking and I'm not drinking as much and I'm going into a blackout, like that's not what I'm looking for. Right. You know? And that's how it was for me with, uh, with heroin and opiates is like, they weren't doing what I intended or what they used to do for me. Yeah. Um, and so I remember just like doing as much as possible, trying to end it all and it, and it did nothing. Um, you know, it got me high, but it didn't, you know, I couldn't numb the pain anymore. Yeah, right. Um, and I've had those thoughts of like, just like, what's the use, mm-hmm. you know, anyhow, you know, like wh- why it. should I continue? Um, I identify with a lot of her story, but I mean, that was really something that like hit me right here. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate her transparency and her, you know, getting vulnerable. Yeah. You know, again, like stemming back from childhood, trying to become that perfect person to, yeah. to appease the psychotic mother, like that, that thing. And, and we got our topic based off of that, you know, the way that she would interact with her mom and her mom would interact with men. And then she would eventually interact with men. Yeah. She got that, that, that kind of same way and starting the whole thing off with trying to be perfect, but having, you know, the food, which again, I can totally identify food, with, yeah, the, you know, just anything that I can put in me mm-hmm. to change the way that I feel. 
Right. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Well, and and you know, it, it, it works to a point, but it, it got to a point with her a number of different times where she could recognize that it wasn't working. You know? Yeah. And and so she would move on to something else. It sounds like, you know, she was able to sort of get rid of that binge eating behavior, but then all of a sudden she was just a shit magnet when it came to, yeah. you know, these negative relationships. Yeah. And, again. And, and that and became again. the norm with her. Yeah. Again and again. Over and over and over because she never really was able to shake, I think, that idea of, of trying to be perfect. Yeah. And I, I definitely and, and, identify with that. And, like, I got to be perfect or I'm, you know, nothing. Or I'm unworthy of love. Of unworthy of love. And, and unfortunately, like, it sounds like in her case, like, I mean, I say that and I think somewhere subconsciously I pick that up. But quite literally in her story, like... She, you know, she was almost made to feel that purposely. Yeah, from her mom. Yeah, and 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 that's just the sad reality of mental illness, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah I mean, it was a great story. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of stuff yeah. out of it. And then and then you know, fast forwarding, you know, to this, you know, going through the couple of, of marriages, trying to create that false reality within herself, knowing that that what's really going on isn't really going on. You know, trying the hippie love thing and like the world is so peaceful and trying to see the world through rose colored glasses and, and that not working, you know, into like, OK, well, if the world's not this, then it must be this, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and and then starting the dating world again. And again, like, how did I end up here again? Right. You know? Well, because she didn't know how, like, and that's, and that's like the problem that we run into, like, especially early in sobriety when we don't have any tools and we don't have, you know, any, any answer to our negative coping mechanisms is that we like, how, how do I date? How, how do I date without alcohol? How do I interact without alcohol? Like, I don't know how to do any of these things yeah. without, without the coping mechanism that I've always used, you know? And so you know, it, it took her some time to get to a point where she was able to invite in some new, some new ideas yeah. into that. You know, yeah. And she has, and that's kind of where she is now. Yeah. She has a new solution for life and, and it's just, it's an honor to have her on here. You know, Deanna, thank you for telling your story. It's a privilege to get to watch you interact with your children and the connection that you have with them and, you know, what you're bringing out to the world and being willing to, to help other people and, 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 you know, share what works for you and, and all those things. So it's just a great privilege to have you as a friend and, and have you on the show. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Deanna. Really? For sure. Well, Robert, man, I really, I can't, I can't thank you enough for being here. And, and this has been just a, a great experience. You're, you're obviously somebody that, uh, that, you know, I can see would help a lot of people. I, I think, you know, I, I put myself in the shoes of somebody new to recovery and, and I can see, you know, entering into a treatment center the way that we do, where we're frightened and scared and we have no idea what the future looks like. And we have no idea what the fuck is happening. And, and just having, you know, somebody like you with the story that you have, like really offer some hope and, and, and I think that, you know, it's so important, you know, in those early stages to have people like you, like I said, I mean, I, I owe my life to people like you and, yeah. and, and the things that you guys do. So for sure. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing it with us. Yeah. Where, uh, where can people find you? Uh, so simply uh, our website's anylength.com. So that's A-N-Y 
L-E-N-G-T-H dot com. Okay. And you can find us on, you know, Instagram, um, Facebook at any length retreat. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and we'll leave, we'll have links to that, uh, you know, in our show notes and, and people will be able to find all that stuff, uh, through us. But, um, you know, Robert, uh, thanks again, man. Um, if there's yeah. anything we can do for you, uh, please let us know. We're more than happy to do anything we can. And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. With that. Yeah. I really appreciate everything and, uh, look forward to keeping in contact with y'all. Y'all are awesome. Uh, Keep up you. the great work. Thanks, man. Really appreciate that. Yeah. With that, let's wrap it out. Willie, what do you say? Uh, thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the other side. Remember, you are worth the work. Come on. <laughs> Perfect. That's a wrap. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.